0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, I'm invited into the home of esteemed scholar and historian of religion, Martin E. Marty. Professor Marty is well known for his study of fundamentalisms as well as the clash of religions in the global context. We sit down for a cup of coffee, we talk about religion in America, and we discuss what it's like to be a scholar looking back on a long and illustrious career. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Martin E. Marty. Professor Marty retired as a distinguished professor from the University of Chicago, where he taught for 35 years. He's known for his work in the history of religion and for his scholarly work on understanding religious fundamentalisms and religious conflict. He's devoted himself to the study of public religion, especially researching and writing about pluralism. At the University of Chicago Divinity School, the Martin Marty Center, named in his honor, continues his work in researching and understanding public religion. Martin Marty, welcome to Things Not Seen. Good to be with you. Well, I'd like to start out by asking some questions about religious pluralism, and in particular, uh, the distinction that you make in some of your work between the concept of diversity and pluralism.
1: I use uh, kind of a sports metaphor for defining pluralism. Number one, any number can play. Number two, there are rules of the game. Three, there are habits and customs, and there is an ethos that goes with it. When my wife and I would play tennis, we would follow the rules, but I'd serve up the second serve instantly, and, oh, you don't do that. Well, in... in pluralism you can't have a rule for everything that happens but i think by and large the american people have learned what it is to live with somebody who's very different from you nearby that had to be learned it was not natural native so any number can play that diversity has that too but diversity doesn't really have any rules of the game and i think that our first amendment to the constitution and the many court cases and the many philosophers and public educators have all contributed to that
0: well, you mentioned the First Amendment, and for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with what uh, what that uh, what the First Amendment says or how it factors into uh, public discourse on religion in America, could you give us just a brief background on how uh, sort of the First Amendment and religious practice intersect?
1: First of all, the Constitution is very clear. Sixteen words: Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, nor Uh, prohibiting the free exercise thereof. One conservative scholar of the Constitution, speaking of it, said the Founding Fathers solved the problem of religion in America by not solving the problem of religion in America. They set up some ground rules for a game to be played, but when we think of all the diversity through the years, we're lucky that it was that short. But uh, it it provides the framework. And I think that... uh, We have to ask how that came about. We have to remember that the Europeans who came here, not the Africans, they were enslaved, but the Europeans who came here, almost all, I guess all, came from countries that had what we would today call an established church. The law was behind it. And in nine of the 13 colonies, they they uh, perpetuated that. The Anglican, we call it Episcopal today, church in the south, and the uh, Congregational and... uh, Presbyterian and Independent in the North. Um, They couldn't conceive of any way except that the state paid for it, legitimated it, but it didn't work. James Madison, who has to be my hero and anybody who studies this, uh, was a very cool guy, really a boring speaker, but uh, once in his life at least he got inflamed, He's a young kid in Virginia, and he's writing to somebody in Pennsylvania which had separated church and state. religious his freedom. And the debate was, can you be just as moral without establishment? And uh, Madison says, the diabolical hell-conceived principle by which ministers of the gospel in my county are are in prison because they don't have a license from the state and the anglican church well you, you could see something had to give uh, some very noble uh, thinkers for liberty stayed with the establishment patrick henry couldn't conceive of the alternative but a, a kind of a coalition between people like thomas jefferson who represented the enlightenment and baptists who were suffering from it and then in the middle colonies you had a very different pattern Everybody came, Pennsylvania, founded by Quakers, uh, built it right into it, and the New Jersey, places like that, people came from all over, and as they came from all over, they had to make things work somehow,
0: and that's how this got invented. Now, why this concept of establishment, the notion of a state-supported church, why is that a bad thing? Why should we not have an established church in America?
1: James Madison liked to quote a French philosopher, Montesquieu, who said, If you privilege a religion, you will corrupt it. Uh, That was Madison's theme. The the potential for purity in America was the fact that the state wasn't backing it. In New England, for example, a minister would graduate from Yale and be assigned to a place and spend his next 45 years there. And as you read the sermons, it would be... uh, and now in the 17th place the better divine say so and so but then everybody's asleep along comes somebody on horseback riding up close and says are you sure your minister is converted is he saved is he capable of it and uh, what we call the great awakening happened in those churches but they couldn't contain it all and you had some people there who started saying uh, yeah you're bending things as far as you can but we still have to pay tax for a faith we don't believe in. (laughs) In Trying to get New England behind the Revolutionary War, uh, Robert Treat Payne deals with the Baptists. And he said, well, it's very light. We hardly charge you anything at all. (laughs) And and the Baptists said, it's not the amount of the money, it's the principle of the thing.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today from the home of Professor Martin E. Marty, the famous historian of religion. A couple of years ago, I interviewed uh, Jacques Berlinerblau from Georgetown, and he he made the bold statement that a robust secular space in American public life is what allows religious freedom to be possible. And I guess my first question would be: Do you agree with that sort of characterization? That we need to have a a neutral space carved out in the middle of our public sphere for Religious uh, liberty to function properly? Let's start there. I will agree with him, and then I will disagree with him. I'll agree with him uh, in that
1: uh, the contesting is is valuable. If you're overwhelmingly uh, one church, many places in the American South, for example, is overwhelmingly uh, Baptist or whatever, Utah, overwhelmingly Mormon. You don't have to have an established church if you've got 60, 70, 80, 90% of the people doing it. They get elected to the state house, they pass the laws that go with it, and so on. So, yes, I think uh, the more our map is blurred and mosaic type, the better off we are. Uh, Where I'll disagree is it is so hard to define what we mean by a secular space. Is there such a thing? Uh, it becomes a vacuum that gets filled with something or other. It, to me, it's almost amusing that uh, the uh, newly organized groups of atheists in America, uh, when they get organized, pretty soon they say, well, we've got to sing some songs together. Well, we've got to have some ceremonies together. <laughs> and pretty soon they're, they're kind of replicating it. Um, or maybe a bigger problem for a pluralist society... People always ask me, do do I worry about atheism? No, atheism is an enlivener of religion. Uh, Martin Luther, I'm a Lutheran, said, God prefers the angry shout of the atheist to the pious prattle of the overly pious. And I think that uh, is enlivening there. But uh, I've, I've invented a word that nobody would like, including myself think of what I think we came up with. Religio-secular. We are a religio-secular society, and everything you push, uh, something else bobs up. David Martin, a great British sociologist of religion, was also an essay called Toward Eliminating the Concept of Secularization from Sociology. Why? He said, well, what are you going to do with this? Three words. Tell me, am I describing a person Secular or religious. Texas Baptist millionaire. Uh, in one sense, he wants separation of church and state, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, but he also really and he wants the preacher to stick to heaven and the life to come. Don't meddle, don't get anyway, And yet, who is more involved with it than that? Um, so I think that almost every version of the religious in America has a secular dimension and couldn't live without it. Quick illustration. When Elvis first wiggled his hips and um, everybody in the uh, uh, evangelical and fundamentalist and Pentecostal churches thought, what a terrible thing. uh, How obscene it is. You're grinding your pelvis and stuff. Uh, 15, 20 years later, they all have uh, rock bands. They all have uh, music of this sort. They knew they would have lost their kids without it and they knew it worked and kept them together, and they were very vital. But uh, it was music that was described as very secular. I used to cover some of these events, and uh, except for there was no pot in the air. (laughs) The costumes were the same, the hair length was the same, the the words you couldn't understand anyhow. Uh, Is that secular or religious? I think it's religious, but it sure uh, is at home in the secular. And when I look at the best-selling uh, gospel and soul and rock and rap I don't I don't hear them but, <laughs> but I read about them it's really hard to define which sister has moved over and which hasn't um, I think that would be true in many things uh, it's interesting to me that very often the people who most want separation of church and state most want school prayer when you say we've got to keep church and state separate but we have to have it. Now, I, have to, uh, I happen to think that a little messiness is not bad here. Uh, I'm not an absolutist on this. For example, I think that uh, having and uh, paying for military chaplains uh, would be an infringement on the concept of pure separation. My Navy pays for one of its officers to carry on religious work. That's not neat, but I think um, it's defensible. It has it has ground rules. It has boundaries. It's very popular. It helps the nation in times of crisis. So I think in those cases it's clear. But when you have to have the public high school football game in Texas on a Friday night has to join with prayer, and some Unitarian Universalist or somebody says no. Uh, It's illegal. You have a huge fight over it, which is part of why I'm agreeing with uh, the scholar who said that solve the problem by not solving the problem. And each such abrasion forces us to rethink. And as everything in a republic, you win some and you lose some.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're airing a special interview today that was conducted in the home of Professor Martin E. Marty, He's well known as both a public theologian and a scholar of religion and culture. We're discussing the role of religion in American public life as well as his long career as a scholar. We'll be back in a moment. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes Store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at Facebook.com slash Radio. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. We have them all archived at our website, so if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on the thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog, just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you, as always, for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today from the home of Professor Martin E. Marty, the well-known scholar of religions and public life. We're discussing both his research and his esteemed career. In your 2005 book, When Fates Collide, you, you make the statement that religiously informed civic pluralism that you study and write about, it differs from theological pluralism or turning pluralism itself into a theological theme. And I'm wondering for our listeners if you could take a moment and distinguish these three categories of what we might call civic pluralism, theological pluralism, and pluralism as a, as a theological theme.
1: Novelist Saul Bellow said, how do I know what I believe until I've said it? So I will say something and see if it matches. Um, I like the concept of what I call mere pluralism. That is, it makes no decisions about anything metaphysical, standing behind this order. Um, it doesn't claim to have the truth about life. It simply says, this, this is where the boundaries are when you're playing tennis. This is how high the net should be. Here's how often you serve, here's how we keep score. Mere pluralism, and I think that's at heart what we're best at. Uh, uh, Theological pluralism uh, invests that then with very distinctive meanings, usually by farming it out or finding that it is farmed out. Um, The Catholic will interpret it one way, the Lutheran another, the Jehovah's Witnesses (laughs) all the way different. but I think in this case um, America has a very large tradition of the Reformed, the Calvinists. Most of the Protestantism was that. It's alive in Southern Baptist Convention in some ways and so on. Uh, well, it has, the, has this figured out differently than others. Um, in one sense, every civil act is adding up to something that the founders like to call, operates by God's providence. And very often, if you read the debates over the Constitution, there are two fine volumes about this. I I read them line by line once, and how often they're trying to avoid the word God, but they'll say providence, or they'll say heaven, and they're really pointing to the same kind of thing. They're doing us a favor by making it so innocuous that it doesn't hit you very hard, whereas when you get very explicit, then, then it rules somebody out, but that would be theological pluralism that's that uh, I that, 'm um, just going to intrude for a few seconds on, on how different it is for the Lutheran. The Lutherans divide, Lutherans divide god 's uh, action in the world into two different things: righteousness. The one is the righteousness that veils before God. And that has nothing to do with the civil order. The other is civic righteousness, which can be unbelievers as well as believers. Uh, Martin Luther is said to have said, nobody can find it, but he would have said it if he knew how much we needed it, better be ruled by a smart Turk than a dumb Christian. Now you can find that he says roughly that, but never that succinctly. Uh, no, because the the prince, as he would have called it, the president or whatever, is to serve everybody. And what you want is somebody of conscience, of reason, of good ethics, and so on. But you don't, you don't back up from there and say, well, he, he's approved, she's approved, because they got the right creed behind them.
0: Since we've been talking generally about politics and pluralism and religion, it might make sense to spend a few minutes talking specifically of the events of the last few months, particularly uh, Indiana and other states that have passed Religious Freedom Restoration Acts at the state level, and kind of what that, what you see that indicating for the state of, of sort of political religion in America right now.
1: I think the uh, RFRA or whatever it is was one of the signs of, back to the theme, that they didn't solve the religious problem or did they did solve it by not solving it. Um who would have foreseen a few years ago that we'd be fighting about the things we're fighting about? Uh, in 1954 until the 1980s, the fights were almost all about race and war. Uh, yeah, a lot of interest groups were there. Certainly, they cared greatly about abortion and so on. But, uh, they assessed that they were on the wrong side of some of the earlier ones, and so they could preempt the space here by acting in conscience, and remember, they are acting in conscience. And then they run into a pluralism that they hadn't encountered or foreseen. Let's take one illustration. Gay marriage. Total flip. 30% were for it now, 30% against it, depending on which state you're talking about. The suddenness of that uh, there was no new doctrine. There was no new... Well, there were some new laws adjusting to it. But basically, it was uh, a change. One of my favorite philosophers, José Ortega Gossett, says, real history is not made by wars, treaties, uh, conflagrations, and so on. Real history is made when the sensitive crown of the human heart tilts ever so slightly, as from optimism to pessimism or vice versa. Well, the sensitive crown of millions of Americans' hearts turned when they thought, okay, here's that big fat book called the Bible, and there may be that many inches that say something critical of homosexual activity. Uh, I don't want to make fun of it. It's there. But how are we going to weigh that when I, a Baptist minister, have a daughter who is in a gay marriage what am I going to do about that and then they start balancing which which is going to win which is going to lose uh, now you could say people gave up on their principle i think many of them adopted a different principle <laughs> people of conscience can differ and can find ways in which not mere power wins uh, i sometimes uh, welcome the energies of these debates when people ask me about, am I worried about atheism? I was going to say before, before. Uh, I think the enemy of vitality in faith and ethics is uh, indifference. Getting people to care about why these things are important in the first place. And that's why I don't like it when people uh, drive any of these points so far that they get to be absurd. I read recently that the... Uh, Museum of the of Biblical Art on Broadway is closing, uh, folding. Uh, it's a nice place, underfunded. It was accidental, uh, originally built by American Bible Society, which was mainstream and conservative Protestant. I probably was a supporter of it all along, for all I knew. Uh, and then it came upon hard times. Uh, everything from copyright laws changed. They couldn't hold on to that everything changed and they still kept this nice little museum it's going down with the best show it ever had Donatello Art couldn't have better reviews but the CEO or the executive director said one of the things we suffer is Bible to a lot of Americans now means anti-freedom it means weird stuff and so on we could do all the things we want, but if it's in our name, they're not going to pay attention beyond it. Well, why? Because they're used to people quoting the Bible in things that they see inhibiting their freedom or dimming the lights of the culture. So I'm, indifference is the problem here.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Martin E. Marty, the professor of religion and the history of religions who has spoken eloquently for more than 40 years about religion in public life. If you're interested in finding out more about Professor Marty and his writings and his work, you can do so at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We're having this conversation uh, the same week that the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the Obergefell case about gay marriage. And I was listening to the recording of those oral arguments uh, a couple of days ago. And there's a point in the first round of oral arguments where you can hear a protester stand up and begin to shout to the Supreme Court that if they make a decision against traditional marriage they're risking burning in hellfire. And you can hear the protester literally being dragged dragged out of the courtroom. And as the arguments continue, you can still hear him shouting from the hallway for several moments afterwards, even though the doors are closed. And that's part of pluralism too, but that leads me to understand in in this tension between indifference and absurdity, is there a limit to pluralism? Is there a limit to how much we should tolerate, for lack of a better word, in our public sphere, in terms of of strongly held religious belief.
1: You can't have a society if it's based only on shouting, because nobody hears. Uh, The kind of illustration that you use is largely dismissed by the larger culture. A hundred years ago, there was a newspaper man in Chicago, uh, Peter Finley Dunn, who invented a character called Mr. Dooley. Irish accent, and I got some of my best definitions from Mr. Dooley. Mr. Dooley says a fanatic is someone who knows he's doing what the Lord would also do if the Lord were also in possession of the facts. When when a fanatic shouts like that, we laugh him out or we drag him out, but he's not a threat to anything. Uh, There are, no doubt limits the, the standard always says you don't shout fire in a crowded theater um but i think we should be very late in the game and reluctant in, in calling them up they're usually occasioned by a current discontent that passes I, i've several used several times used my own lutheranism here have got to get a, <laughs> a reminder here's that are just people um, in World War I, the Lutheran schools, that was the largest non-Catholic school system, all taught in German. They'd just come over in the late 19th century and they taught in that and they thought Dr. went with it and so on. And then suddenly, state after state passed laws saying you couldn't teach in German, which was their way of uh, trying to be patriotic, but... All the teaching, Ten Commandments, the Creed, everything, was in German, um, and a very famous case in my home state of Nebraska, Meyer versus Nebraska. Uh, he, he was to be imprisoned because he was teaching in German along the way. Well, that settles itself as time passes, people catch on to it and so on. That was a, good, a clear illustration of some place where you were way too restrictive. Uh, there were religious dimensions to the imprisonment of the Japanese in uh, World War II. One of the great crimes of our century, last century, uh, take thousands and thousands of good citizens. When they got to be in the military, they had the highest casualty rate of any service unit. Good citizens all the way around, but they were Japs, and they had this. They didn't have Jesus, and they didn't have all that. Terrible things happened. Um, and that was a case where we're going to have it. They, they would have said it's ethnic and political, but it was it was everything else too. Uh, I think there there are limits to to that, but I'm very cautious about when you ru- when you rule them out. Um, we definitely limit some liberties. Fluoridation of water. I'm glad it came home before my children did because my dental bills weren't not nearly what. They would have been otherwise, uh, but I know uh, Christian scientists who had a problem of to water, blood transfusions of the Jehovah's witnesses. Uh, they read some biblical passages and in conscience, they really think it's wrong. Well, uh, how do we solve that? If you can get it to a court, the judge will say, "I'm going to act in the parental role. We don't want that child to die. And the Jehovah's Witness, I think, way down deep says, Oh God, I'm sure glad it's happening. My child's going to live and I, and I didn't sin. Uh, I think there's just an almost infinite number of adjustments that go on, but they only go on if the larger society is given to civility, to consideration, to listening to the other. And that's the big problem, I think, in a time when, it, when we're polarized, when everything comes down to just two. Uh, the more the merrier. Any number can play. Many do follow the rules.
0: Well, you, you talked about this adversarial uh, nature of our of our culture. I, I come uh, immediately before coming to Chicago. I was in Tennessee, and one of the problems in several places in Tennessee, particularly in Murfreesboro, south of Nashville, uh, there's a, a Muslim community there that wished to expand one of the mosques. And the, the town council and also citizens of the town found any number of ways to try and block those efforts, even to the point of arson. Um, there we have a minority religion, which by all accounts should be protected by the First Amendment like every other. And we have a majority religion using its power to exclude. But we also have something else curious that I I was surprised by when I when I discovered it was happening. We also had civic leaders and religious leaders saying, But Islam is not really a religion. So to try and even uh, discount the even possibility of religious protections. And I I guess I'd like to get your thoughts on that kind of political maneuver of looking at something that clearly has been recognized as a religion and suddenly trying to redefine it out of the religious category and away from religious protections.
1: There's no way you can de-religiosify Islam or any of the groups. Uh, that's a legal feint. Uh, it's immoral, it's dishonest, and everything else. Uh, you should let everything be what it is. <laughs> and that's what the people in it would say it is. And I've never seen a definition of religion that would mean uh, Buddhists aren't and so on. Uh, Buddhism doesn't have God, but it's obviously religion. Islam, to anti-Muslims, has too much God, uh, penetrates too many dimensions of life along the way but i don't think that ploy is going to work what you have is uh prejudiced neighbors or frightened people or whatever who don't understand who the neighbor is uh, here in greater chicago i used to live in the western suburbs and uh, some big mosques came in these were the most law-abiding people and it, there were people who opposed them at first and they said oh my goodness that's my doctor. That, that's, that's 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 our nurse. That's our dentist, and so on. Uh, that begins to solve itself that way. Uh, so again, I know those lo- local instances. Uh, all kinds of people who use traffic patterns or whatever. These just have to work out their way in a in a civil society.
0: And so, your thought would be that ultimately, the the Jeffersonian marketplace of ideas will will settle out these rough edges over time well i'm not I'm not an optimist in the
1: sense that everything's going to be all right. I'm going to say that our best odds are that uh, this happens because we've seen again and again and again think of uh racially mixed marriage absolutely abhorrent and illegal many many places just a few decades ago um now I look out at any Christian church i'm a member and and uh, uh, white and black and you know, Asian and Western, uh, are all over the place. Uh, By the way, mixed marriage, as we call it, is one of the great uh, salves and solvents in in pluralist society. Uh, You can often have domestic warfare, trying to settle how you're going to bring up the kids, but uh, it's, it's limited to that. And in the larger circle, it helps solve a lot.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Professor Martin E. Marty. For more than 35 years, Professor Marty taught at the University of Chicago in the Divinity School. He also founded the Institute for the Advanced Study of Religion there at the university, which upon his retirement in 1998 was renamed the Martin Marty Center for the Advanced Study of Religion. He has written prolifically on religion in public life and the history of religions and the conflict of religions. We're speaking today from his home in the John Hancock Center in downtown Chicago. Our conversation with Professor Martin E. Marty continues after this. We'll be back in a moment. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. We have them all archived at our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on the thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog, just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you, as always, for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're continuing now with our conversation with Professor Martin E. Marty. A lot of your scholarly work has been on the study of fundamentalisms. And here in America, we certainly have a Christian fundamentalist wing. And the dog whistle rhetoric that you hear is that we're in a new holy war in some way with the fundamentalists or with the whole of Islamic culture. And I'd just like to get your take on whether or not you think that those characterizations are leading us towards uh, a conflict on the level or reminiscent of the Crusades of 600 years ago.
1: I often will turn on television and I'll have a speaker who uh, is an ex-Muslim and thus fights it and exposes it. Uh, Max Shaler, a philosopher on whom the late, Pope John Paul II wrote his doctoral dissertation, made a study. When you form a tight group, you know each other's secrets, you know everything up close, and then you leave it. The great temptation is, he says, you you become, quote, an apostate. And Saylor says, an apostate spends his whole subsequent career taking revenge on his own spiritual past. Many, many do that, they brought up in strict Catholicism, they spend the rest of their life fighting it, uh, and strict fundamentalism spend the rest of their life fighting it, etc. Um, I feel sorry for them, but I think what they do they pick out all of the worst features of what they were a part of there 's no doubt about it, some Catholic sisters wrapped your knuckles too hard um, who didn 't uh, you, you 'll find this in any kind of thing along the way. But taking it in the main, I think we have to look at all the other things that go on there. So to reduce, I would never minimize the the problem of Ousis and ISIS and and anything like that. I will have a careful defense and surveillance. I don't want to die. Um, I would never minimize that. But I think this notion of um, lumping everybody together doesn't do justice at all. Okay. doesn't do justice at all to the, way, to the way things are lived. Again, my doctor, my dentist, my nurse. Um, if you've had a lot of dialogues with Muslims, as I have, um, you learn some things about the Bible you never paid any attention to. I never paid any attention at all to the Amalekites. You never get five minutes into a Christian-Muslim dialogue when you talk, talk about the Quran without the Amalekites coming up. Why? Books like Joshua and Judges, what about the Amalekites? The Lord said, kill all the Amalekites. Kill all the men. Kill all the women. Kill all the animals. Kill all the plants. That's not genocide. That's omnicide. And I've never met a Jew who says that's what Judaism is about. Uh, they are they're rough passages in Christianity. And I won't ever meet a Christian, very rarely, that says that's what it's about. It's folded in into the complex history of what is there, and they're drawing on a very different dimension of it. Uh, so I think what we should do, getting back to Abraham Lincoln's theme, we should uh, seek to hear the better angels of our nature. Uh, and I think we do, uh, increasingly. It won't be easy as long as we have you know, kids from the upper Midwest heading over to Syria to fight. <clears throat> it's not neat, but nothing is ever neat in history. And I think we have to live with that messiness um, toward a time when people understand each other better.
0: Professor Marty, in, a, in, a, in another conversation that you and I were a part of, uh, you you made a a point to quote a poem, and uh, I'm paraphrasing, but a a line from the poem was, what do you do with a diminished thing? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, indeed. And was that Robert Frost? Robert Frost. Um, Should I say a little bit about it? Sure, please.
1: Robert Frost, at mid-career, probably 40 years old, started looking back already. He wrote kind of an old man's poem called The Oven Bird, and I won't try to reproduce the beauty of its poetry. I'm going to reduce it to prose. The oven bird, there is such that's a thing, is a bird that comes late. The better seeds are gone. The better plants are gone. Uh, the robin's voice in spring is long forgotten. And the oven bird comes along, and it's a tick. The leftover seeds and leftover songs, and that. And uh, he has wonderful phrases. The oven bird knows that it's the late season. Uh, soon we will fall into the season we call fall. And at the very end, he says, But what does the oven bird know? He knows to frame things in a certain way. He knows in singing not to sing. He knows what to make of a diminished thing. He has a raspy voice, and then he kind of knows not to sing, and if there's something there. But most of all, he works for a diminished thing. I think you could work out a whole philosophy of life from that, and I think for individuals, uh, the people I hang out with, I had a... Relative, I better not be too close by mentioning who he was. Came to visit me when he was forty years old. We hadn't seen each other for a few years. Forty years old, sitting on a porch swing, celebrating my fortieth, and he said, "I'm already, As you look back on your life, did it turn out the way you wanted it to?" <laughs> well, oh my! I noticed in all of his talks, he always have, his metaphors were autumn, uh, sunset, late evening, twilight, and so on. And uh, that's just how he looked at things. Well. The people I enjoy are people older than I and are such who uh, are at exercise class if they can get around. I will see them at symphony and opera. I see them volunteering with uh, church kids or whatever, as long as they're physically able. But even if they aren't, and I visit them, they uh, they know they're diminished. It's a law of life, uh None of us are going to escape that. We hope we'll live long enough to experience some diminution. Uh, My colleague, Father David Tracy at Chicago, taught me that there are three words, long words, easy to unpack, which have to become part of your consciousness before you talk about faith and hope and love. And they are finitude, contingency, and transience. Finitude: You're going to die. Everything. God, every right? every plant will die. Every uh, symphonic recording will die. Uh, secondly, contingency: accidents will happen. Why does this classmate get cancer? And I don't know. I haven't had it. Why does this one's son uh, taken from him early? Not mine. Uh, why do bad things happen to me? I my first wife died of cancer. It was contingency. Reorient your life. And then the third is transience. Nothing's going to last. We can dig up the pyramids. We can dig up uh, the DNA from very, very long ago. But it won't last. Uh, What are you going to do about it? And Robert Frost, Ovenbird, knows what to make of a diminished thing. You don't have to just talk about diminishing. You have to talk about making um, I have another relative who says, Marty, we got to realize now we're on the downslope. Yeah, sure, uh, we are. But I prefer the metaphor of a diminished thing <laughs> because a diminished thing is still the thing. Downslope says to be gone pretty soon. Uh, and I think that happens in civilizations too. You can't, uh, we can't have the kinds of vitalities we had when we had a frontier. But we have other kind of frontiers in an age of technology. Uh, Many, many things that I cherish are diminished now. My life has been books and they're kind of waning. Uh, My life has been public gatherings and very often that's reduced now to 140 whatever uh, things. Uh, But for me the interesting thing is what are people making of it? And uh, yes, the young will do that better than others. (laughs) My favorite cartoon is uh, is uh, "Pearls Before Swine." It's a goat and a pig and a rat and an armadillo. And in one of the recent things, uh, you could see the communication going on. The old armadillo was saying, "Now, uh, how do I get the message? Well, you have to put it in a tray. What tray? Well, in the well, where is it? It's on top of your." television, it goes on and on like this. Finally, the last line is, never give your parents anything invented in the last 30 years. Uh, so we're diminished. I could never possibly get good like my grandchildren do with this. But we find ways to communicate, and we both owe each other efforts of that. And I think that's true of our political parties, which are really, really old, tired, diminished. And we should put energy down to finding ways in which fresh life comes
0: there. As I've watched you talking about this concept of diminishment and beyond the diminishment, the ultimate finality that we all face, I've been watching you, and you have seemed to be uh, not bowed down by this, but instead I've watched you become enlivened by this. It's almost like you delight in this notion of having to wrestle with the diminishment. Am I, am I catching that correctly?
1: I think you're right. I, I think it doesn't happen if you don't wrestle with it. Um. One of my favorite biblical stories is Jacob wrestling. And I once wrote a biography of Martin Luther and decided I was going to see him in that light. His interpretation, to come back to it for those of us who don't have it vivid, Jacob, he has been nasty. He's a deceiver. He cheats his brother. He does all the bad stuff. And now he's going to be meeting his brother. He has all his flocks and all his herds. He's on the way. And... The scariest story I can think of at the Brook Jabbok in the night there's another figure in Hebrew ish which simply means man and they confront each other and he wrestles with him and as anybody knows any part of the story knows uh, Jacob uh, would like to be released no I mean the figure pardon me Ish would like to be released. And Jacob, wrestling with him, says, I won't let go of you unless you bless me. So, he blesses and touches the thigh. So, Jacob gets a new name and a new wound and a blessing. Well, I would say that's what I look for in life, how these things come together. Uh, a medical anthropologist who's influenced me says, you will never get a wound without the potential of a blessing, but you'll never understand a blessing if you haven't had a wound. So I think of Jacob and the other thing that Luther says at the end, have you ever noticed this figure says to Jacob, You have wrestled with God and the human and you have won. And my God, we wrestle with God, we won? Well, obviously you haven't wrestle with the creator of the universe in one, but the, the thing of God that's bugging you and bothering you and threatening you, uh, you, that can be fought off. So yes, I think the challenge is that, and it comes in different forms. Um, I'm often in a, an age group now where I, I can't think now without thinking of a colleague who's in a hospital six blocks away from me in one direction, and a former pastor and bishop, who was uh, in a rehabilitation clinic, six blocks in other direction. And uh, what are we going to do? Their vitality isn't what it was, but we are going to bring out of each other without, I hope, my imposing myself on him. I have to listen. I'm not the world's best listener. But uh, in every such case, they'll, they'll say something came on the day that I hadn't expected. Uh, I hang out a lot with musicians, and uh, I like to celebrate the role of music in therapy and everything else. Every chaplain I know, every pastor, rabbi, letter I know, who calls on the very agent will say, if there's some dementia and they're losing a lot, the one thing that often comes alive is a, a song. Amazing Grace or some hymn they grew up with, Abide With Me. There's something in the brain that makes that work. Uh, The great uh, Catholic sociologist uh, Andrew Greeley uh, had a terrible accident in the last four years of his life. was not really functioning. Lived in my building and uh, our building. And I would call on him. Also, when a priest would come to say Mass. And uh, the priest or my colleague David Tracy would hold up the Mass book and just a glazed look, I but well, what a sad thing! Every gesture of the mass came back. He knew when to pour the water, in. he knew when to say the sign of the cross. He knew all those things. Uh, to me, that's a little metaphor of he made he made something do. Uh, my wife and I were <clears throat> back from Europe, and I brought him a glassine picture from Chart Cathedral. Uh, of the Saint Martin window, because Greeley kidding me would call me Saint Martin. He 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 gave me a little Saint Martin medal that probably saved my life or a, who knows how often. There's Saint Martin, <clears throat> and that's from Andrew Greeley, and I, I can never get my teeth out without thinking of that. <laughs> well, Greeley uh, had this terrible accident. I called. I want to call on him. You might sit there twenty minutes. Nothing happens. <clears throat> And then I said, "Andrew, I brought you this highly reduced uh, St. Martin window, maybe sixteen medallions in it. He looked at the and I said, "Who are all these little people?" And I said, "Well, they're all part of the story of uh, St Martin Well uh, and and uh, he suddenly stopped. He had two bottles of water on the table. He took the top off the one and dipped it, went to the window, and picked out the one that had St. Martin in it and made a sign of the cross on it. And he said, Easter, holy water. Now that's making something of a diminished thing. I'm being blessed. I'm being lifted by it. It gives him the experience of uh, having meant something. I, I shouldn't overinterpret it. I don't know what else is going on in him. But uh, those things happening would be, to me, the illustration of, that uh, that's kind of a minimal one there are a lot bigger things going on
0: well Martin Marty I appreciate so much you and Harriet inviting me into your home and thank you so much for our conversation today I've really enjoyed it as I told you
1: off off camera <laughs> off microphone uh, Saul Bell was made how do I know what I believe until I've said it you forced me to think things through and I like that
0: Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded on location in the John Hancock Center in downtown Chicago. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at @notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com/thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalton. and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.